You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Before we get started, quick word from our sponsor, Smitty's Fly Box, delivering monthly flies, fly materials, and accessories each month with their Smitty's Subscription Fly Box. Smitty's has been producing high-quality flies and materials for over 30 years, so now it's time to take the guesswork out of fly time materials and patterns. You can support this podcast right now and get a great selection of flies and fly time materials right now at Smitty's Fly Box. That's Smitty's, S-M-I-T-T-Y-S, smittysflybox.com. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. How you doing, Mark? Hi, Dave. Great to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming on here. This has been an episode I've been wanting to do for actually a long time. Uh, Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway is obviously, you know, I don't know. I mean, he's probably the most famous author of, it seems mm-hmm. like, of all time. I, I've heard a lot about him. I haven't read as much as probably some people out there, but a lot of the famous authors that I've in people I've talked to have, you know, referenced him as a big influence. And so I want to talk about Hemingway. I want to get into what made Hemingway, because he's got a really amazing life and crazy life and story. But uh, before we get there, let's take it back to you. You've got, I mean, you're a professor, you've got all sorts of, you know, uh, accolades behind you. Talk about what you do and how you came to, um, you know, dig into Hemingway and what he does. Well, I can tell you my origin story with Hemingway. I was very lucky in the sense that my parents were readers. So my mother was a writer, my father was a journalist, and everywhere in my house there were books and newspapers. I had an older brother, so there was always material around, and I was just a curious kid. And I really stumbled on Hemingway, not in a university or in a high school classroom. I just started reading his books. I know that's sort of ironic to say because now I'm in the university teaching other uh, kids. But I just stumbled on him myself. And this is a world that is completely foreign to me. Bullfighting, deep sea fishing, hunting, safari, war, drinking, all the things that are really the opposite of what I do. Uh, Yet I just loved being part of the world. So it was really Hemingway grabbed me, his style, the subject matter. And I've really been curious about him ever since that, ever since those moments. Right, right. That's it. He, I mean, to me too, it's all those things like the, the bullfighting, the war. I mean, war for me is probably the biggest one because I think I always kind of joke about it, but it's like, I, I knew that was one thing I never wanted to get involved with, but it seemed right. like for Hemingway that he really felt like, you know, something he had to do. And he kind of, I don't know if enjoyed it was the right word, but talk about that. What was, what did war mean to Hemingway? So Hemingway was the grandson of combatants in the American Civil War. So he sort of grew up with that kind of 
romance or the sort of legend about going to war as a rite of passage. So when Hemingway went to war the first time, he went to the Italian front during World War I as a Red Cross volunteer because he couldn't medically pass into the U.S. Army because of his eyes. So he took the extraordinary step. Now, there were, of course, American volunteers and members of the American military. Most of those went to the Western Front. So to be in Italy made Hemingway a very unusual uh, character, made his participation very unusual. And then Hemingway, so he goes to Italy in June of 1918. On July 8th, he's blown up by uh, Austro-Hungarian trench mortar. And so he is seriously wounded in his legs about maybe just a few weeks after he gets there. And that incident of getting blown up really sort of gave birth to a lot of his early fiction and most famously, A Farewell to Arms, which would come out 11 years later. Um, but just to finish the, the notion about Hemingway and war, he would later go to the Spanish Civil War, which led to For Whom the Bell Tolls. And also he was a, a journalist during World War II. So he really did go to three wars very um, intensely. Mm, right, right. And I, yeah, and I just got done. Actually, I was watching the uh, the Ken Burns documentary. Mm. I, I'm a big Ken Burns fan, and he covered the Civil War, which was obviously this amazing war. And I think some of the stats on that were, yeah, I mean, it was crazy, right? The amount of people who died. But so for Hemingway, I mean, talk about his writing a little bit. I mean, how would you describe, you know, I, for somebody who maybe hasn't listened to, or hasn't read Hemingway, how would you describe his writing? Well, it's important to understand that Hemingway began as a journalist. And the difference between fiction and journalism is probably obvious to most of us, you know, to, to your listeners, which is that there are two different objectives. And so Hemingway really was influenced by the journalist's need for objectivity, for facts, as opposed to creating some kind of a emotion, like contriving some poetic emotion. And let me use a specific example that probably will make it more clear. If you've ever talked to a veteran or a soldier about his or her war experience, what I've found is you very rarely get, oh, you know, some emotional landscape of what happens. They usually tell you, oh yeah, it was raining, right. it was freezing cold, or it was on this particular day. They'll give you the fact and you kind of have to read between the lines. You have to sort of supply the emotion because you're rarely going to get an emotional rundown of what happened. And Dave, this is what Hemingway called the iceberg theory. Hmm. Iceberg theory in the sense of he'll give you one eighth of the visible text, but seven eighths is beneath the surface that is being suggested or implied or left out. So that when sometimes when you read a Hemingway story, first-time readers can say, nothing's happening. Nothing's going on. Right. They're just talking about nothing. Well, Hemingway is depending on your participation, your collaboration, where you have to supply the meaning every bit as much as he does. So the one-eighth that he gives you is attempting to be evocative enough that you are going to be inspired to let your imagination do the rest of the work. Oh, right, right, right. And does your imagination, 
uh, with Hemingway, couldn't it go off in a place that maybe isn't, it's your own fiction, you're creating it from Hemingway? So if the writer is doing it properly, you're probably, you might have more than one possible reading, but you won't have an infinite number of readings. Uh, you are invited to let your imagination go. But so another, here's a way of, of thinking about it. Um, sometimes his characters will say, let me just pick an example. Let's say, yes, I said. Well, you don't hear how he says it. It's not, yes, I roared, or right. yes, I said with a snarl on my face. It's just, yes, I said. And so you and I could actually have it. I was like, well, how did you hear him say it? And you're like, well, I thought he was being a little sarcastic. I was like, oh, that's interesting. So you talk about it, you think about it, and you see what holds water and what really doesn't. And it's a very... I'd say it's a risky or courageous way to write or create art to say like, I trust what I'm doing enough to let other people take it the rest of the way. But you know, Dave, I bet you do this in your, in your everyday conversation. You know, someone says, Hey, how, you know, how did the meeting go? Yeah. And you're like, Oh, don't talk to me about work or, or it was okay. And you, you just give them a, a hint and they're like, oh, I bet, I bet there was a conflict, or I bet there was uh, a tension, or, or something like that. Yeah. yeah, this is the way we speak in in human existence. Yeah, that's right. Unless it's something really exciting, where maybe you want to share that, try to share it as best you can the story, right? I mean, that's the amazing yes. thing is it's a story. Unless it's positive. Yeah, a positive, right, right. If you get an award, I bet you'll share that in every detail. But if something is embarrassing or traumatic or humiliating, or disappointing, you'll probably just give the bare minimum. And unfortunately, and this is almost a, a caricature with Hemingway, Hemingway usually writes about very difficult situations like men at war, and romantic problems, and family tension. And so you don't get a lot of uh, effusion when you're narrating the story. You know, one of the one of the things we can think about is how do you tell stories that are difficult to tell, that involve unpleasant memories, and so this is all part of the Hemingway formula. Hmm. Get ready to explore the wild of Northern Rockies adventures. Imagine yourself surrounded by pristine waters, towering mountains, and the thrill of landing trophy fish like the majestic Arctic grayling, the elusive bull trout, or the classic rainbow trout. With over 40 years experience guiding anglers through these breathtaking landscapes, Daniel's family-operated trips promise not just a fishing journey, but an adventure of a lifetime. From the convenience of Vancouver, BC, dive into an all-inclusive experience that caters to every detail of your trip so you can focus on the thrill of the hookup. Take a look for yourself at northernrockiesadventures.com for an exclusive premium BC fly-in fly fishing trip. Where does that style that you describe there where he's letting you kind of fill in the blanks, where does that come from? Was that something that he, you know, learned? Were there other writers that were doing that mm. style? It's a good question. I think that it comes from journalism, his journalism background, but also his subject matter, which is that the men of action that he writes about, uh, which does not mean that they're not thoughtful, smart characters also. It just means that they're involved in crises or dangerous situations. And that is not usually given to a kind of a uh, profusion of detail and description and emotion. Usually you're in a 
situation in a Hemingway novel where action is required more than thought. Right, right, right. That's just the, that's the characters that he enjoyed. Well, I mean, that was, that was also him, right? I mean, with his life, do you think, I mean, think about the thing you mentioned a little bit, the hunting, you know, the war, things like that. The fishing is one of those things. And obviously we talk a lot about fishing here. Where did that come from? And talk about his fishing. When did all of that start? It started from day one. Hemingway, his family used to go to Northern Michigan in the summers. They had a cabin up there. And Hemingway's father was a really excellent uh, naturalist in the sense of he was, first of all, he was a doctor, but he also was a hunter and a fisher and he loved nature. So he really exposed Hemingway to both a love of nature and a love of fishing and hunting. And there are pictures of Hemingway just as a little kid. I mean, as a toddler holding a fishing pole and then just slightly older holding a hunting rifle. So yeah, it was really with his father that he, that he learned about a love of fishing up there. Wow. Have you ever been to the Northern Peninsula or, or Michigan? Uh, not to Michigan. We're heading back. We, we've been doing some stuff down to like uh, South Shores of Lake Erie. So, but I'm, I see. but I'm hoping to get up there. We have a lot of listeners in the Michigan and that whole part of the Great Lakes and everything. Yeah. Well, they know that these are, these are things that I wonder if Hemingway even made these even more famous than the, that they really are, you know, uh, Petoskey, Horton's Bay and, and so forth. And Hemingway loved that. And he always wrote about that. It's very interesting. He wrote about that geographical space in his short stories. He never wrote about Oak Park, Illinois, which hmm. is where he, that was his actual home, but Michigan is where he went in the summer. And that is where he wrote some of his great early stories like Indian Camp, Doctor and Doctor's Wife, The End of Something, and uh, Big Two-Hearted River. These all take place in Michigan. So that was a real formative experience to be out in nature in that area. Man, amazing. What was, you know, I think of all the stories with what he wrote about and just some of the traumatic things that happened to him in his life. And you mentioned at the start, the alcohol and mm -hmm. all these things. Can you describe like him, kind of the, the real person versus kind of the myth of Hemingway? Because I think, or is it all combined? Is it the same thing? Like how did, talk about that a little bit. It's a great question. And you just mentioned the Ken Burns documentary. And I think the essential aspect of that documentary is that it tries to separate man from myth. The first thing I'll say about the difference between man and myth is that I blame Hemingway more than I blame any other person for the conflation of the actual human being and this Papa Hemingway character that was really unattractive and unappealing. He was a bragger, a womanizer, boozer, brawler. You know, it was like, Nobody likes this guy. What we like is this is the artist, the guy with a sensitivity to human experience and to war and to nature. And so that was the real person. And it got to where he maybe, and this happens with a lot of insecure people, not just with famous people like Hemingway, is that their bluster is like a defense mechanism. And Hemingway just happened to have this insecurity that forced him to act that way on sort of an international global scale. Uh, and it was, it was pretty cartoonish at times. But my, my preference, and this is 
to Ken Burns and Lynn Novick's uh, great credit, and we talked about it when they were on One True Podcast, is that if you just look at the words on the page, it's absolute genius. And that outweighs this, all of the other nonsense, you know, that he got into a bar fight or that he killed a tiger or something like that. I don't have much, much interest in that, certainly as much as, as the work. Yeah, the work. And that's what it comes down to. So like a lot of people, not only famous people, but he did a lot of things that were, you know, stuff you probably don't want to, you know, you know, <laughs> talk about. But really, I mean, he was a great writer and that's the stuff that, you know, that's what he is remembered for. Right. Is that kind of what we, we, I guess we do. We look, we don't look at that stuff as much and we focus on those things that made him great. That's kind of what you're saying. I agree to the extent, and this, this becomes very interesting because in the 20th century, it became easier to know about writers. You know, there was, there was more media. And, and so even someone like Mark Twain, you know, he kind of had his image. If, I bet if I say Mark Twain, you're like, oh, white linen suit yep. and, and the powdered hair. Right. And so you kind of have that image. Well, that wasn't an accident. You know, he, he knew what he was doing. He was very smart. And so he got his picture taken and that, that became his image. Walt Whitman was kind of like a disheveled uh, bard. And Hemingway, you know, anytime he killed a 400 pound marlin he would be on the docks with a huge smile and that that picture would be all over the newspapers or if he killed something out in africa same thing so he did that and then and so why did he do that why did he want to take the big photos the big animals the big fish my sense is well first of all i have no doubt that he absolutely got joy out of it yeah and i will say mark let me just say the fishing thing is interesting because we talk about this a lot in the conservation part of this is there's a whole movement called keep them wet where you literally don't take fish out of the water because it hurts them and and so and even to the point where people are starting to stop showing fish pictures of people holding fish because it's just like hey you know it's not good for the fish let's not promote it you know what i mean so this is an interesting topic you know what i mean because hemingway it's not weird that, that he's doing that because many people love to show a big fish was that even a movement, you know, 50 years, 100 years ago? Or is this, no. is that more or less a new thing? Yeah, that's like in the last 20 years, probably 15 years. Okay. So he- Hemingway wouldn't have known about that, but maybe when he's out in Africa, you know, focused on killing lions and, and all these, maybe, I don't know. So in the 1930s, when he's doing that, all I know about the 1930s is that that's not a time in American history where a lot of people, had the money to go to an African safari, you know, that's quite a, you know, I think prorated the money that he spent going to Africa and going on this really fancy safari, must be over a hundred thousand dollars, you know, of, of what would cost today. So very few people. So that wasn't really what America was looking for in its artists in the 1930s. They were, they were more looking for John Steinbeck and William Faulkner who sort of had an, eye towards labor and people who, you know, didn't have it very well off in the 1930s who were suffering. And sometimes when we suffer, we look to our artists to either bring us up or to hear us or to represent us. And with Hemingway, sometimes, and the reason I'm, I'm trying to connect this is because when he's beaming with that enormous Marlin, it's, it seems a little out of touch with maybe the way the rest of the country was operating at that time. Yeah, right, right. And you mentioned Ken Burns. So did you have Ken Burns on your podcast? 
We had Ken Burns and Lynn Novick who co-directed that Hemingway documentary. Yes. We oh, did. wow. Wow. How was that? How was that podcast? Oh, it was wonderful. And they also co-wrote the introduction to our book, which is called One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art, which collects, we have as a sort of a game, we ask many of our guests, usually writers, what their one true sentence is from Hemingway's work. They get to choose one true sentence. And we talk about that once. We do kind of a deep dive on that one sentence. And so Ken Burns and Lynn Novick were kind enough to write the introduction. Yes. So they they did something very uh, shrewd, which was, as you might expect, one of the things that we think about with Hemingway in the year 2023 is like, oh, he's a He's a dead white male. Oh, right. Why, you know, he's representing, you know, the yeah. sort of the mainstream or the establishment. And so there's, there's kind of a backlash against people like Hemingway. Oh, really? And yes. And so what, what Burns and Novick did was they got people from all around the world to talk about how a Spanish writer would think about Hemingway or how a woman would think about Hemingway uh, in, in ways that we don't normally connect. So what did Hemingway mean to all various people? So we, we got to see Hemingway from, from different perspectives. It, it was very well done. Yeah, it was. And, and the one true sentence, I love that too. Um, maybe we'll ask you at the end of your, your one true sentence, mm. but I mean, it's uh, basically the idea being that like, you know, tell something true, right? Tell your right. most passionate, like one thing that you can, and don't, is that kind of what we're talking about here? Don't make it up, just, yeah. just one sentence. That's all you got. Hemingway remembers telling himself, he wrote a memoir called A Movable Feast, which talks about his life in Paris in the, in the 20s. And he's, he said, anytime that I couldn't get it going or I had, so he doesn't say writer's block, but that's kind of what he's talking about. He's like, I said, don't worry, you've done this before. All you have to do is write one true sentence and then go on from there. And is I don't know if you know people out there think about that. If, you, if you're stuck on something, sometimes all you need is that first step, that right. next step. And yeah. then it, it all, it all kind of tumbles from there. And, and that's how, that's what Hemingway did. But you know, when I, Dave, when I heard you say like, all he means is the true sense. Well, what does that word true really mean? That's kind of a, right, it's a pretty true. basic adjective, but it, does it mean true? Like it really happened true? Like it's authentic or true? Like it works in the context of the story. So even the word true is slippery. I don't want to get all English professory on you, but <laughs> right. you have to admit that that word. It's a good word. Mean, yeah, it might mean something different. He doesn't say one excellent sentence or one brilliant sentence. He says one true sentence. One true, yeah. Yeah, that's a good, I mean, exactly. And that's, I mean, just the epitome of his writing. We're thinking about it. We're talking about like, what? Now, what is he talking about with true? That's yes. exactly what, and when he wrote, that's what he was, he knew he was doing that. Let me try to connect something, if I could, to fishing about this topic. So Hemingway was... So two of his passions, one was bullfighting and one was fishing. I mean, there were several, but those were two of them that we've already talked about. And so Hemingway remembers, he's like, these are two things that not everybody likes. So when you write about them, how do you explain? And I'm sure you and all of your listeners have had the experience of being on a wonderful fishing journey or trip. And it's like, you want to share it with somebody who wasn't there. Well, sometimes no offense guys, but a fishing story is not as exciting right. as to, That's right. <laughs> to the person who actually did it. So Hemingway says, well, with bullfighting, 
what I realized was I found a detail. And that was that when the matador got, got gored, I saw his shin bone so white, gleaming through the blood and the dirt and his uniform. And he said, I knew if I could capture how white that was, that would even you wouldn't have to like bullfighting, but you would the vividness you would be there. And with fishing, he says, hmm. how am I going to explain how exciting this was? So he's talking about a deep sea fishing and he says, you know what it was? My line was so taut that droplets of water were bouncing off of the line in the sun. And he's like, and he's like, I knew if I could write that, that you wouldn't even have to like fishing or know much about it, but to know how tense the experience was. Right. With a giant marlin on the other yeah, end. Yeah, with a giant marlin, right. That and that was a one that was a that's his notion of like a one true sentence or one true detail. Yeah, right, right. I and I've had one of our famous uh you know we've had a few famous people on the podcast over the years but uh, john girock is a famous fly fishing writer he's probably one of our most famous writers oh okay and he's written a lot of um just a lot of great stuff and and he talks about you know hemingway and and you know tom mcguane and some people like that and just how they wrote and he i think he was talking about tom when he mentioned you know he talked about instead of just saying you know like in this example you know, the guy's finger was really, he was this old crippled, you know, old guy with arthritis. And he said his hands were all mangled. And he said his, his index finger was so bent. You know, there's a couple ways you could do that. You could just say, hey, the guy's hand was mangled. It was bent. It almost looked, you know what I mean? Instead of just saying that, he would say that finger was so bent that if he pointed, made a gun with his hand and pointed at you in the face and pulled the trigger, that bullet would shoot you in the foot. You know, basically, oh, right? Terrific. That's terrific. So is that kind of Hemingway too? Is that sort of stuff? Is that his style too? So Hemingway would never write a sentence like that because I think it's so uh, it's so descriptive in that way. But that is, that's brilliant. Yeah. I love that. That's more Tom McGoyne. I think that is Tom McGoyne style. Yeah, that is. Um, but what it is, is it's showing instead of telling. Yes, exactly. And if you, you know, you can say, oh, I have a cut and that doesn't mean anything. But if you show someone the cut that you have, that is what really matters. So showing, not telling, that's a beautiful, uh, beautiful example of it. Um, another thought occurred to me that might be interesting about Hemingway's sort of journey as a fisherman. And that is in 1934. And again, I'm going to repeat this. This is during the height of the, or the depths of the depression. He bought a fishing boat. Um, he bought a boat called Pilar. Right. Which was a boat that, I mean, I think it cost at the time over $7,000, which in the thirties, you know, again, that would be, that would equate to well over a hundred thousand dollars and is a 38 foot boat. And he loved this boat so much. He called it Pilar, which is also the name of maybe his greatest female character, uh, Pilar in For Whom the Bell Tolls. And Hemingway had always said, if he ever had a daughter, he would call her Pilar, but he never did. But it was this boat that he really used all the time. He took all kinds of people on this boat. And yeah, he was able to pursue this deep sea fishing off of Cuba, off of Key West. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, I remember. I mean, he's had, that's kind of the challenge with Hemingway. Do you find that with your podcast that, you know, or just talking about that he's got so many stories, so many great books that it's hard to cover everything? How do you look at that? And how do you look at your podcast? Oh, that's an inspiration though. That's, you know, I just like you never going to have enough 
trout streams to talk about or fishing, you know, details and experiences, they'll never be enough. And with Hemingway, you always, oh, you're going to run out of ideas. Well, you really, you really are not. And to me, that's an indication of a great artist. You take someone like, you know, Van Gogh, who really wasn't enormous. I guess he was prolific. He didn't live in a, a really long life, but he did enough that you could talk about him forever in the way that you couldn't with a more minor artist. So with Hemingway, the last thing that I'm concerned about is, is getting to the end of the, oh, we nailed it. We right. got everything. <laughs> no, and you know, the way that this type of investigation works, I don't know if you find the same way with, with fishing is you have one podcast and that spawns like two different ideas for two more podcasts. Oh yeah. So it's not like when you talk to somebody that ends the inquiry, it actually stimulates further inquiry, at least if you're a curious person and your topic is sort of fertile. Yeah. You said it, you said that the key word was curious. I think, I think that's the number one thing about being a, a good podcaster is being curious and it goes know. a long way, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 And I think that's the same. I mean, every episode I do, there's always multiple guests, new ideas that come out. I'm like, Oh yeah, I should have that person. I should do that topic. And it's, that's, what's amazing about it. Well, Dave, there is something I'm curious about since I haven't, I've never spoken to a, a fly fishing expert before. Yeah. And so there's a moment in Hemingway's work and I don't want to uh, take a detour if, if oh, you yeah, don't go want for to, it. but no, so there's a, a posthumous book. It was published in 1979 years after Hemingway's death called Islands in the Stream. And there's a long set piece, maybe 20, 25 pages in that novel, where there's a young boy named Davy, who is the son of the protagonist, Thomas Hudson, named after a river, I might add. So he's he spends a long time battling this, this fish. And I think it's a marlin, although I might be wrong. I believe it's a marlin. And they're going back and forth. And at some point, Davy, who is you know, trying to land this fish. He says, I love this fish more than I've ever loved a person. And does this ever happen when you're battling a fish that you begin to identify with it? There's like the predator prey, yeah. so almost association. Is that a real thing? I think it might be for some people. I don't know if I've ever, I mean, I think of this some, and I, again, I haven't had a marlin on the end of my line. I haven't had a, some of these giant fish. I mean, probably okay. I've had some big fish on. I mean, steelhead is one that I've fished a lot for. And I feel like I'm so in the moment of trying to land that fish that mm -hmm. I'm not thinking about anything. I'm just totally into it. So what does that mean? I mean, when you say I'm not thinking about anything, are you, you must be thinking about something. Are you just reacting or what is going through your consciousness? I think I'm just thinking this thing is t spooling my line and I'm getting ready to lose it and I don't want to. So I'm trying to just focus on everything I can do to turn that thing and get it in. Oh, so you're thinking technically yeah. about things. That's interesting. So how long does it take you to... What's the longest it's ever taken you to land a fish? Yeah. So, I mean, that's probably, you know, probably whatever, 20 minutes, maybe something like that. Yeah. So totally different. Okay. So not it like, for instance, the old man in the sea. Yep. It takes three days. Right. <laughs> it takes him three days. He's, he's tethered to that Marlin for three days. I know. And at some point Santiago says, he says, you are my brother, but I am going to kill you before the end of the day. So it's sort of the it's both things at the same time. It's, I love you, but I'm still going to kill you at the, at the end. I know. 
Well, and I will say for hunting that this is a little bit different because I do a little bit of hunting and deer hunting. You know, I have, I do have that moment where I'm getting oh, ready to shoot it, and you know, and then also you get to a point where you're getting it out and you're it's just this visceral thing where you're, you know, and you're appreciating it. You know, what I mean, you're more. I understand, you know, I appreciate that, that animal. I'm sacrificing it because I'm feeding my family. That's interesting. So no hatred or, or disdain or no. anything like that. It's, it's actual, it's a respect. Yeah, definitely. Like in hunting cultures, there's a, a famous moment in the sun also rises where they're talking to the, the bullfighter and he says, the bulls are my brothers. And they go, oh, really? You kill your brothers? Like, yes. So they don't kill me. And so it's kind of an understanding of that cyclical nature of predator prey. Uh, so Hemingway was, was quite sophisticated in that. But Hemingway has this young guy. I mean, he's maybe 10 years old. He's understanding that even as a kid, that there's something grander about than just trying to land a fish. You're doing something much more in tune with nature. Yeah, yeah. Did the, um, you know, I'm not sure on Hemingway, like I think of Native, Native American tradition, right. especially right. with sacrificing and the same thing, right? The animals were their family, um, but they sacrificed salmon and animals. Is that, did some of that come from Hemingway? Was he around or where did that come from? So in terms of Native Americans, the Northern Michigan was where that was you know, Ojibwe. And he was, you know, as I mentioned, his early short story, Indian Camp, featured Native Americans prominently. So yes, he was very, um, he was very invested in their, in their culture. Yeah. I'm not sure if he would, if I would say, I've never made the connection that yeah. he had any kind of philosophy of hunting or fishing because of Native Americans. But I do know that he was, he has a short story called 10 Indians, another called the doctor and the doctor's wife. So he has plenty. They often are characters in his, his early work for sure. Yeah. And you mentioned, we talked to the old man in the sea. I mean, that book was, I mean, what, what a story, right? I mean, yeah. this giant fish, the struggle, then he doesn't have the fish, it gets eaten. I mean, talk about that, but what, what do you, you know, is that, I don't know. I mean, it seems like that's probably the most, one of the most known books for you. Are they all great? Or do you have a list of like, Hey, these are the, these are kind of the top, this is the top 10 top, whatever. I think there's an understanding of which ones are masterpieces and which ones are sort of more minor works. And I don't have a favorite. I usually, because I teach several of them and I, I kind of do it in rotation, it's usually the next one that I'm about to write about or teach is the most, I'm the most enthusiastic about. I'm in the middle of a project on a farewell to arms. So that would be my current favorite. Like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sort of interested in that. With The Old Man in the Sea, what's interesting is that that was sort of based on a, a true story. And Hemingway published the, the Old Man in the Sea in 1952. He had the idea for that as early as the 1930s. And it's the perfect Hemingway theme of winner take nothing. Mm. So that's actually something to ask a fisherman about, which is, do you count it as a win if you land the marlin after days of battle, you strap it to your boat, and then the sharks can <laughs> eat it before you get to either eat it yourself or sell it. So you've done, you've sort of done the, the work but you don't get the reward. So where does that leave you? Does, do you get internal satisfaction from it or is it all wasted effort? Right. Yeah, that is crazy. I think uh, 
in present day, I think of it as, as a win, you know, it's still a win, yeah. but back then, I don't know if it would be because the food was, you know, fish like that was important. It seems like maybe that wasn't a win. For Santiago, it wasn't sport. It was, it was important. And there's this, there's a very interesting shift at the beginning of the old man in the sea. So he's talking about fishing off the coast of Cuba. And he says that Santiago has a, a young helper named Manolin. And Manolin's father wants this boy to help the commercial fishermen who have the new modern equipment and they're successful because they, you know, they have all these modern methods and modern equipment and they get a lot of fish and they get, a, they get more money and they have a steadier income. Manolin loves the old man, Santiago, who still has a skiff and he's doing it all the way he has done it his entire life. And he's not that successful or he's been on a really unlucky streak. So this is, I think this is a, a, a broader issue about nature and business is that when does capitalism take over? Hmm. And so for, I always wonder how the old man in the sea would be different if Monolin went with Santiago and disobeyed his father and said, no, I'm going to help you today and we can do it together. It would be a much different story, but no, Santiago had to do it alone. And what's Monolin doing? Monolin has to provide for his family. So he makes a choice. He's, he has sacrifices some aspect of his loyalty or his ethics so that he can provide for his family. And it's a, it's kind of a, it is a sacrifice. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Well, one thing I've been thinking about, and you know, I'm kind of going to the end, I guess, with with uh, Hemingway. But at the end his, of his life, I mean, he committed suicide, right? Um, yes. I mean, in another extreme, right? I mean, another one of these things. I I kind of understand why, but talk about that. What, what you know? Why did that occur? Is that something that surprises you when you look at his life, or is that something you kind of expect? Yeah, that's kind of the way I'd expect that to end. It doesn't surprise me. His father killed himself in 1928 as Hemingway was editing A Farewell to Arms. And Hemingway was went through an enormous period of depression and mental illness. He had shock therapy at the Mayo Clinic. This is something that if this happened in 2023, one would imagine, and again, this is above my pay grade, but one would imagine the treatment would be more sophisticated, the medication, he was having these paranoid spells. There's a sort of a cliche that says, oh, Hemingway killed himself because he couldn't write anymore. Well, I guess at the basis level, that's true. But he really killed himself because he was tortured uh, mentally. If you look at the Ken Burns documentary, to me, one of the most striking things is that he aged so quickly mm. that he goes from this young, handsome guy in his 30s, then he goes to World War II, and all of a sudden, he's literally an old man in his 40s. And I'm not saying that to offend 40-year-olds. Yeah. I'm saying that most 40-year-olds that I know are youthful and healthy, and he just looked like he had lived a full life at 40. And so by the time he get, he dies at 61 years old, and if you look at that, he looked way older than that. He looked gaunt. He looked like an old man in that. So he really did. And, you know, the alcohol didn't help that. So he had uh, physical injuries to his head. He had mental illness and alcoholism. And that is a bad combination. 
Yeah, that's not good. And the alcoholism, was that something that, I mean, just, he was an alcoholic. He drank all, I mean, that's obviously going to kill you eventually. So I, when your word eventually, I think is, is sharp because in the twenties, when he's in Europe and it's like, Hey, people drink, you know, with every meal in Paris. And that's all fine when you're young and active and your body can process that. But this has an accumulating effect and it became way too much. And nobody can doubt that that really did, you know, who knows where the lines are, but it, it must have accelerated the, the downward spiral. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Waters West Fly Fishing Outfitters is your go-to resource for spay and swung fly techniques for the OP and beyond. They're known for their deep selection of unique high-quality fly tie materials, and they are the gateway to some of the great steelhead rivers in the country. I was able to get out on the water with Ed, and it was an amazing day. We uh, hit the shop early, met him at the shop. We fired up the old vehicle and headed out on the river. Ed is the type of guy that you feel comfortable right from uh, minute one, and it was a good day. We ended the trip uh, four buying into this unimproved boat ramp, uh, pulling the boat out, and, and we ended up with a great opportunity uh, and landed a nice, very nice cromer and had a few other touches. Fished one of the great rivers in the country. It was amazing. Not only do they cover steelhead, but all species in the area, and they have a passion for all fish that swim up or live around salt. They can outfit any angler from the beginner to the most hardcore fishing bum you can imagine. They have a great online store, fast shipping, and uh, you will be supporting conservation when you support Waters Last. Please check in with Ed and Kyle right now to say hi and let them know you heard uh, from them on this podcast. And you can do that right now, wetflyswing.com slash waterswest. Pauline, talk about that person. Uh, I mean, maybe just give us the, for again, somebody that doesn't know any of the history, who was that person and what was the influence on Hemingway? So Hemingway was married four times and Pauline Pfeiffer was his second wife. And one of the interesting things about Pauline Pfeiffer, especially for listeners of this podcast, is that um, Pauline had a really wealthy uncle named Gus, and Gus financed their safari in the early 30s. So Hemingway was able to enjoy this extended hunting trip into Africa because of Pauline's father. Of course, then they divorced and uh, Hemingway went on to Martha Gellhorn. That was around the period of the Spanish Civil War. And then he went on to Mary, who was his widow um, for the rest of his life. And, and that was, so yeah, that was, he was married four times. So he was always, it was very interesting. He, people call him a womanizer and there's various truth to that. He really kind of went from wife to wife to wife. It wasn't like he had a long time of bachelorhood. He would wait until he had another wife in waiting before he divorced the previous wife. It was, it was a little bit um, peculiar. Right. He always had to have somebody there. Like that that's was, correct. He loved, right? He kind of loved being in love and the whole thing. That's kind of his part of his thing, right? He, he enjoyed that. Yes. And he seemed like his, he wanted his wives to take care of him. And to various extent, they did. And, you know, the third wife, Martha, had no interest in doing that because she was a journalist herself and she didn't want to put up with a needy, you know, husband. And 
Mary was was much more willing to play that to play that part of you know Mrs. Hemingway. Yeah, we mentioned that the bullfighting is interesting to me because I don't know much about it. And um, and was it Death in the Afternoon? Was that that was the book? Yes, Death in Bullfighting. So as a novel, it's The Sun Also Rises, and as a nonfiction book, it's Death in the Afternoon, which is essentially like a a textbook about bullfighting. Yeah. Yeah. And that, because it's interesting, I mean, it is this, this the way when you look at how it goes down, I mean, what, what do you think caught him? I mean, I guess we've talked about, he just loves those, you know, why did bullfighting, well, maybe just bring us back. How did he get into the bullfighting and then why did he love it so much? So bullfighting was, I mean, I don't even need to speculate because he explains what he loves about bullfighting. And he says, for me, the only place you could go to see violent death once the war was over was the bullfights and the bullfights, you know how many bulls are going to die, you know when they're going to die and where they're going to die. So you can actually go and and if you're a writer, you can study that process. You can study the bravery of the matador, how he behaves. Let's say, how does he behave when he's in trouble? How does he behave when he's victorious? How does he behave when he's getting knocked around by the bull. And so all of these things, and, and Hemingway is absolutely fascinated by them, about how does a man look in crisis? And you could find that at war, although, of course, that's not so easy to say, okay, I'm going to go I'm going to go to the nearest war just so I can study. Right. So bullfighting is kind of an organized version of that. And it's kind of like the difference between a bar fight and a boxing match. A bar fight is chaotic. You don't really know when they're going to happen and there's no rules. But a boxing match has rules and you can go and study that as kind of a, a process or an art form. At least that would be that would be useful. Dave, I did want to say one thing about the Sun Also Rises that yeah. I think you would be particularly insightful about. And this is just something, a random moment that happens towards the end of this great early novel. So this comes out in 1926. And there is a moment in Spain when Jake Barnes, the protagonist, and his friend Bill Gordon, they take a break from the bullfights and they go fishing at Brigette on the Arati River. Have you ever had anybody on to talk about fishing Spain? Uh, we'll see. We've had some Spanish. I don't think we've talked specifically. No, not yet. Uh, so they're they're going to fish the uh, Arati River, and they very interesting. So Bill decides to fish to fly fish, and Jake is fishing with a worm, and Bill goes above the dam, and Jake fishes down below, and Bill is much more successful, catches more fish and bigger fish. And so first of all, like that's the first takeaway. And yep. so I want to stop by asking you, is Hemingway meaning to say, if you use the more exertion, if you use more exertion, if you use a more active or creative means, you're going to get rewarded more? Or is this a coincidence? Right. And, and was the, the fly fisherman was the one that caught more? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good one. It's a good one. I, um, you know, I think that's funny because that comes up a lot in just our conversations where it's like, okay, you got fly fishing. Why do you fly fish? And it's always this interesting thing because a lot of people start out conventional fishing, you know, like as kids, you start out fishing with the worm and then you slowly, and then you start with gear and then you slowly fly fishing is not easy. And yeah. so a lot of people think that we fly fish because it's the harder thing to do. 
you know, it's, it's like, it's that thing. And then what do you do once you become the master of fly fishing? What's next? You know, there's always something you're trying to make it harder. So it's really, it's this interesting thing that we talk about. So I feel like that's probably part of it where, you know, somebody fishing with the fly, maybe not that they're, you know, a better, whatever, an angler or a better person or anything. It's just that, you know, it's kind of known that it is a little harder to catch a fish on a fly versus a worm. So it's harder, but do you expect bigger fish and more of them mm. or not necessarily? No, no, I don't think. Really? Ex- Interesting. Not, I mean, there's times when that happens, but I think you expect bigger and more fish with, with uh, bait and gear. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. So, okay. So this happens and then they, they have a, you know, a great time They're They are very happy that they did it. And then they run into another character whose name is Harris and they're sort of, they join up together and they're, and they're fishing together and they notice that there's a, a monastery, which is the monastery of Runceval, which, so it's a classic religious uh, structure and they're like oh look at that you know that's very it's a you know that's it's quite a quite a thing and Harris this guy that they just meet up with he's they say yeah yeah it's it's very splendid but it's not like fishing is it and they go no it's not which is to say that in this post-war generation the modernists the expatriates you know the lost generation they had to find religion in other things that weren't necessarily their parents' religion. It wasn't necessarily that they were anti-religion. It was that they found, they were looking for a religious experience. And Hemingway found it in fishing. That was one thing. So, So just that comment, they said, you know, oh, it's a grand place, but it's not like fishing, is it? And then, so they, right before the, the guys are about to go to Pamplona, Harris meets these guys again, and he gives them a dozen flies that he has tied and that's the great offering that uh, affirms the connection that they made when they were fishing right god that's so good and the religion is amazing because that's another thing that comes up in fly fishing too not only religion not necessarily religion but just meditation and talking about how really it's not about the fishing it's not necessarily even about the catching it's about the experience and the sacred experience yeah the experiences and and so that's amazing yeah, and well, obviously with Hemingway, if you don't know Hemingway that well, there's a lot of work to read. What do you tell somebody if they you know, are listening now, there's all these books? Is there a starting point? Where do you start with Hemingway if you want to just dig into it? Absolutely. So first of all, The Old Man in the Sea is not only a really great story, it's not that demanding. It's about 90 pages, and it's told in pretty straightforward English. So even if you're, you know, haven't read Hemingway before, I think that would be a really good place to start. But I might even suggest a short story, which isn't as, it's kind of a longer short story. Maybe it's like 30, 35 pages and it's called Big Two-Hearted River. Yeah. And I think this is Hemingway's early masterpiece. It's about a character named Nick Adams, who he's all by himself and all it does is show him walking through the Michigan woods, reaching the river, camping and fishing. And it's never mentioned, but it becomes apparent that he's coming home from the war and he's trying to, well, he's trying to do a couple of things. First of all, he's trying to reimmerse himself into something that he loved before he had that traumatic experience. 
And second of all, he's trying to determine how much excitement he can withstand. Can he fish the swamp? Can he go waist high into the stream of rushing water? And how would that affect him? So he's using fishing to gauge his current state of mind, his current capacity. And this is something that Hemingway later said, it's a story about coming home from the war with no mention of the war in it. So this goes back to the iceberg theory that we started our conversation with, where Hemingway, it's almost like, all right, so it's a story of a guy camping and fishing and eating by the tent, who cares? Well, obviously it's a lot more loaded than that. Yeah. And the war we have, you know, just in the fly fishing space, there's a number of groups that use fly fishing for people coming back from the war. Oh, do they? Yeah. They take them out. There's a number of groups around the country, but basically they use that for healing. Like people that have never fly fished before, they take them out and they get them on the water and it helps them, right? It's that time where they're thinking about something other than war. Well, can I ask why, why would fly fishing ever be let's say too exciting or too, too much? Like, would you have to sort of ease somebody into that? Or is fly fishing generally a nice therapeutic activity? Yeah, I think it's, it is. It's there. I mean, there is some challenges about, you know, the casting of the rod and the fly and it takes some skill and there's, there's a whole world of digging into entomology and biology and everything, but it can be really simple learning to cast, seeing a fishing rising to a, a bug that's hatching off the water. And, you know, and then... Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. So you get in this this world of, you know, I guess, I mean, I haven't been to war, like I said at the start, so I don't know. But I mean, I think that's what people enjoy because they can think about something other than, you know, PTSD and everything else they're they're dealing with. For sure. And the this character, Nick Adams... He is, you know, he, he's taking you right through it. And this is this would be before PTSD was even a thing. I think that it was referred to as shell shock, but even that was in its very basic form, you know, in in the early 20s or right after World War One. And so he has this, it's almost like the fairy tale where he's like, well, he catches one trout, it's too small. He catches another trout. It's too big. It's too much of a fight. He's not ready for it. And then he catches another one that's just right. You know, it's just, so it's, he finds his limits. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, Hemingway more than fly fishing was a deep fisherman. And I'm sure that, well, I shouldn't say I'm sure I should ask you, but is there a deep fisherman um, therapy for soldiers returning home from the war or is fly fishing more conducive to that kind of uh, pace? Oh, right. You mean like deep sea, like out in the ocean? Exactly. Right. I'm not sure. <clears throat> I'm not sure if there is. Um, there, I'll bet there's something. I mean, the fly fishing has become, you know, it used to be very one-sided, you know, trout fishing, but now it's like people are out there fishing for these giant marlin now with fly rods. Mm. Yeah. So pretty much any fish on the planet you can catch with a fly rod now. So I'd imagine maybe some, there are some of those groups doing it, but for the most part, I think they're keeping it simple, you know, trout fishing and basic stuff. Right. But yeah, this is, well, you know, and we're going to try to wrap this up as best we can here in a bit. But I, you know, again, going back to his books, you know, you, yep. you mentioned a couple, you know, when you look at his life and the evolution of, of, maybe you can describe that a little bit. How did it go back kind of to the start and really, and just kind of go through that kind of quickly talk about how is writing involved in some of those books along the way? When we think of Hemingway's greatness, like what won him the Nobel prize, 
what we're really thinking about is there's a span of five years from 1925 to 1929 where he writes two volumes of short stories and The Sun Also Rises and A Farewell to Arms. So it's four books in five years that really made him a literary superstar. The 1930s, somewhat less successful. He was way more interested in bullfighting and hunting and safaris than he was in novel writing. Then, which makes his comeback in 1940 for, for whom the bell tolls so triumphant, you know, mm. it was like, it was almost like a redemptive novel. Right. Like we didn't think he had it in him. And that's from 1929 to 1940. That's a long time to go for a relatively young artist between masterpieces, but that is what happened. And then he doesn't do another really major work until 1952, which is the old man in the sea. Hmm. So it's, you know, you, you got to really kind of hopscotch. So I would say Hemingway wasn't a prolific writer, but at his best, he was as good as mm. there is. Wow. Do you think he would have been more prolific if, you know, there wasn't some of these things in there, alcohol, yeah. some of these other things that distracted him maybe? We could ask that about any yeah, right. musician, any rock star. Yeah, drugs like, well, and if, alcohol, if, right. Right, yeah. if they didn't like, and then you have the argument, oh, he needed that to do it. Oh, exactly. It. So right. this is something I don't, I don't know much. Here's what I, I would say that I, here's my guess, is that there's probably a level of excess, a level of drinking and adventure that is just right that you could sustain for a longer period of time. And Hemingway went way beyond that. So if he had restrained himself, yeah, I'm sure. But that wasn't, you know, that it wasn't who he was. He was a, you know, it wasn't who Jim Morrison was either. Right. Right, right, right. Was, uh, do you think Hemingway was kind of, um, you know, like optimistic, dark? What, how would you describe or kind of everything? What would like himself, the person? So I, it was funny you, you mentioned that because I, just a couple of days ago, I read this line from Death in the Afternoon where he says, all stories end in death. And it is no, he is no true storyteller who hides that from his readers. I was like, wow, that is pessimistic, even by Hemingway standards, you know? <laughs> yeah. it's a, but, but then again, he's not wrong, right? Right. And then he says, if two people love each other, there can be no happy end to it. And my immediate reaction is, you know, how dare you? That's so that's so morbid. And then you're like, well, he's technically he's right. I mean, one person, ninety nine point nine nine percent of the time, even in the best marriage, ends up mourning another person. And so Hemingway, so some of his works and A Farewell to Arms is one of them, is drenched in that kind of fatalism. Now, personally, with his fourth wife, particularly, he was she always described him as like waking up in the morning, being positive about his writing, about what they were going to do that day, about going fishing. And he was always sort of enthusiastic, infectiously so. But when it came to writing, he didn't hide how every story ends. Like we know how we know how it all ends. Yeah, that's right. Did we know as far as the suicide, I, I think when he first died, I mean, that's pretty much common knowledge now. Uh, but at the time, was it... Did they kind of try to hide that uh, because he was such a famous yeah. person? So just to back up a little bit. So he, he died in 1961. In 1954, when he was on a safari, he got into a plane crash with his wife. And the plane that picked him up 
to bring him to uh, safety crashed also. Hmm. So he's one of the few people who got into two plane crashes in a row, right? Wow. And yeah, and that was reported that he had died in a plane crash way back in 1954. So that wasn't, of course, that was, that sort of added to the myth. But then in, when he did commit suicide, his wife reported it as a gun cleaning accident. And whether that was to, whether that was intentionally deceitful because she didn't want it to get out, or maybe she's a, a, panicked widow in you know just like not she thinks it at the time because she's just just has deceived herself who knows i don't know what her motive was but it was reported that he had an accident with a gun it was absolutely suicide and there were moments leading up to that suicide where he had either vowed to do it or attempted to do it there's one moment he tried to walk into the spinning propellers of a plane jeez in an airport. Yep. Oh, wow. And they caught him right before he did it. Holy cow. Jeez. Imagine if he had committed suicide that way. Damn. Right. And didn't his wife at the time, I mean, I think she kind of knew obviously what was going on and didn't really, oh, yeah. ha- didn't hide the guns or anything like that. She kind of just naturally let whatever happened happen. So I think she was in a, in a situation where if you hide the guns from the person that you love, it's almost like you're not she would feel like she was offending him or not giving him dignity. Mm. Uh, this is kind of like, I, this happens in death of a salesman, believe it or not. Now that I'm thinking about it is that, um, but that's, we'll do that on another podcast. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's like, Oh, I want to give him the dignity. And so of course, uh, you know, Monday morning quarterback is like, well, how could you give the guy the gun? Uh, you know, and she had locked it in the cabinet, but left the key or, or something along, along those lines. He killed himself in Ketchum, Idaho. And way out west, and you know Hemingway's West was Wyoming, Montana, and Idaho. So that is where they have a they have. A, I've never been out there, but that's where his uh, Hemingway house is. Have you been? Uh, have you ever been out to Idaho? Yeah, I mean, I've been through there quite a few times. I've never been by. Yeah, I'm going to definitely check it out. We're heading out there uh, next month, so definitely. Oh really? Yeah. Oh okay. So it's very. I want to say, Dave, the Sun Valley, which I know is probably a popular destination. So Hemingway was had this deal where they said, you can come out here to Sun Valley. This is before it was really a thing. Uh, This might have been, you know, late 30s, early 40s. And they said, you come out here, let us take your picture and use it for publicity and you can have the run of the place. You can hunt for free, fish, fish for free and stay for free. And he did it. He wow. drove cross country and he stayed there. They had, uh, I think Gary Cooper had the same deal and Hemingway absolutely fell in love with that neck of the woods. That's amazing. I feel like Hemingway, I'm just guessing, but I feel like he, he loved hunting and fishing so much that, you know, he was kind of like, okay, I'll write my, I'll write my books, my great books. And then I'll take 10 years in between just to enjoy life. Do you think yeah. that's kind of what, because he was writing still, wasn't he in that, that period? He certainly was. He, in fact, he edited a farewell to arms out west, and he he has mentions of you know his character in For Whom the Bell Tolls. Robert Jordan is from Montana. His character in Across the River and Into the Trees uh, is from Montana. So yeah, he was very very partial to that. At his best, he was disciplined to write in the morning, and then go on Pilar and go fishing in you know Key West or Cuba or whatever, and he would have that 
that routine where he'd be like, okay, I'm going to get up really early. I'm going to do the day's work. And then I get to, and of course, you know, play. Yeah, exactly. And then of course the discipline kind of gets a little, a little weaker as, as we go along. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Wow. Well, there's uh, I definitely a number of things I want to follow up with you on maybe on the next one. I want to hear it on the podcast. So why did you start? I mean, podcasting, not everybody does a podcast. I know it's a lot of work. How did that come to be for you? And was it pretty obvious what you were going to do it on? Well, I love podcasts. I in probably the way I got into podcasts is, you know, on dog walks. I walk my dog and I listen to podcasts and I I found them really entertaining. I learned a lot. I was like, okay, I want to listen to a Hemingway podcast. And there there was none. Hmm. So my friend, Michael Von Cannon and I, Michael Von Cannon is a, a great Hemingway scholar and he's very adept at production and technology. So he did that part and I'm the host. And we've been really lucky that we invite people on and they talk about all various parts of Hemingway. David, it feels like even today on our brief conversation, yeah. we've we've hit on like so many different aspects of Hemingway's life. So there's never a shortage of, of things to talk about. So yeah, One True Podcast has become a real, um, you know, the Hemingway Society sponsors it. And so both specialists in Hemingway seem to enjoy it, but also people who maybe have just are just curious about Hemingway's life or certain of his activities. Right. So if we go over there and, and listen to some of those, we can just get a feel, just basically dig deeper and hear from other people what Hemingway was about and his stories and everything. You can. Uh, one of the ones I would recommend to uh, this crowd is by uh, a guest of ours named Paul Hendrickson. We interviewed him about Hemingway's boat. Mm, nice. Pilar. Yeah. He's an expert on that. And so we talked about the boat and Hemingway's love of fishing. So, so yeah, there's, there should be something for, for just about everybody. Awesome. I'm excited. Yeah. I always love getting a new podcast or, uh, you know, adding some podcasts to the, the queue. So I want to, and I'll put in the show notes, um, that episode and then also the Ken Burns and some other stuff we talked sure. about today. Um, but I also want to hear on your podcast, if you had to look at your feed right now, what's another podcast that you're listening to that you're liking uh, anything? It sounds like you're kind of like me. You love listening to a lot of different podcasts. Oh, yes, I do. I Wow, I'd hate to... You know what? I'm My guilty pleasure, and yeah. this isn't my guilty pleasure, this is like a, sort of a source of shame, is I'm a Mets fan. Oh, yeah. So I'm from New York, if you couldn't tell from my, my no, voice. No, I couldn't. I couldn't. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I've been in Indiana long enough, but I'm a Mets fan, and so I listen to... Uh, Mets podcast. And the reason I like it is because I get to commiserate yeah. with another depressed person just like me, you know, uh, during that. So well, what's it called? Is there a name? Is it just the Mets podcast? No, it's called the Rico Bronia podcast with Evan Roberts, who is a, a insane Mets fan. And he's the person I have to turn to when I'm going through a particularly rough time with the Mets I also do it with him. But the what you're saying is exactly right, is that for me, podcasts lead to podcasts. So I'll jump to do, oh, I you know, I would never have been interested in this, but then I'll I'll go off to it and and I'll find something. You know, there's also if I'm teaching something or if I'm writing about something, uh, there's a you know, a work of art or a writer that I'm particularly interested in. So I'll I'll bounce around and I'll just try to get as much knowledge as possible. It's amazing. I think it's the podcasting space has been really cool because it seems like it's that place where, you know, long form content, you know, you don't really hear interviews, you know, like, like this in many places, I think. So that's really cool. Um, but in the Mets, 
So I'm going to just go on this a little bit because I have a little bit of sports background in my past. Okay. But, um, so, I mean, my memory of the Mets was, because I was a big baseball fan, just, I remember the Dwight Gooden, right? That Dale oh, Strawberry, yeah. right? That time with... Exactly. I mean, so back in that time, I mean, what's your thought? Are the Mets, I don't even know right now. Are they just up and down always? Or was that the greatest time ever for the Mets? First of all, that was the greatest time ever for yeah. the Mets. I think that was the greatest time ever for the world <laughs> to have <laughs> Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden and Gosh. Keith Hernandez. and Yeah. Who was their catcher? The... Um, Gary Carter. Yeah, Carter. Yeah. It was just so great. And then I was young enough to think that that was the way it was always going to be. Yeah, the 80s. Was that the late 80s? It was the early to mid 80s, right? And then, you know, it's funny, the just what we've been talking about with Hemingway, where excess mm, and... Yeah, cocaine, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so you'd have the guy like Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Gooden, whose talent would be just limitless. And remember the question you just asked, which is what would Hemingway's yeah. career have looked like if he didn't drink or he didn't do all this nonsense? I would ask the same question about the Mets. Like what could have been? It's very sad, you know, that to see that waste of talent. It is sad. It is sad. And was that before, that was like right before the steroid era, right? Or was that a long ways before? That was right before it. Yep. I was right. That, so the steroid era, uh, era seems like it would be late 80s, early 90s. Does that sound about right? I think so. Yeah. Because it was the uh, it was the big players were like uh, Barry Bonds, you know, Mark so McGuire, stuff. right? Yeah. yeah. All that 80s, late 80s, 90s. Exactly. Yeah. Do you have a team? Uh, you know, I don't. I mean, I guess Seattle Mariners. I mean, just because I'm up in the Northwest. But, okay, sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm yeah. not a huge, I don't watch a lot of sports anymore just because, mainly because I got kids and a lot of stuff <laughs> going, but I do love sports. So every time I can get a chance to watch a little bit of a game, you know, it's awesome. I've done uh, I've done a, a real disservice to my older son who I brought him up a Mets fan and it was really no no excuse for me to do that. It was a, it's a form of child abuse. Right. To... <laughs> well, I feel, I feel a little bit because we have the Portland Trail Blazers. That's our team. In the, oh, right, right, yeah, right, yeah. right. So they've right, done yeah. the same thing. I mean, they've had a couple of three times where they've had a chance. Other than that, it's been just not great. It just uh, never happens. And the Yankees, what? Tell me this, because the Yankees, like, how does that feel? Because it just seems like it's unfair over the years, like with the Yankees. Why does that occur? Why don't they make it more like football? It seems like football is more even now. Why is baseball? Why are the Yankees and these teams the have the better teams or better players? It's exasperating, especially because I lived in New York during when it seemed like the Yankees won just about every year. And they didn't just win. They were really obnoxious about it. And the, the fans were really obnoxious about it. And I come out here to Indiana where I work now and live and I see a Yankee hat. And I, I say, like, I came out here to avoid seeing <laughs> that hat. Yeah, yeah. There's I can't escape it. And yeah, the Yankees are, you know, it's just... They're sort of the the rich guy across the street that that you always look at and you say, yeah, what this guy, you know, this guy, I can't, I can't compete. You can't compete. All right. Well, well, Ed, let's leave it <laughs> on, on this. Let's hear your one true sentence. And we'll leave it on that. Oh, okay. Oh, for uh, my one true sentence for me. Wow. Okay. So let's talk about the sun also rises. And in the novel, the sun also rises. Uh, not really a spoiler. In the entire novel, one person dies. This person is named Vicente Girones. He's a side character that we never even meet. He has died during the running of the bulls. In other words, the run you've seen the running of the bulls where yep. they run the bulls through the streets of Pamplona and 
thousands of people run with him and occasionally one person gets trampled or, or what have you. So one person gets trampled and it's this guy. And our main characters say like, hey, how did everything go today? And someone goes, oh, you know, someone was killed. And, uh, you know, one person was killed out there. And the end of the chapter is the character Bill Gorton saying, was there? Question mark. And so <laughs> now I want to pick up exactly what we were talking about earlier, which is how does he say that? Was there? Does he like if does he say like, oh, was there? You know, like flipping a magazine or does he go, was there like in in horror or is there somewhere in between on the spectrum? And what I love about this, and this is going to also bring in the iceberg theory, is that there's a difference between being vague, which is not satisfying no. and is not good expression, and being ambiguous. If you're being intentionally ambiguous, something can mean more than one thing at the same time. And to me, that's exciting. So was there changes every time I read that book that sometimes I'm like, oh, he's being flippant. But then sometimes I'm like, wow, he's really being empathetic or sad. And I love that a book can be dynamic even after so many times reading it. So I'm going to go with was there yeah. from The Sun Also Rises. Perfect. That is awesome. All right, Mark, well, I think we'll leave it there. We will send everybody out. Uh, we've got the onetruepod.com. Uh, they can check out your podcast. We'll definitely get some more subscribers for you there, uh, and we'll keep following you. I, I definitely appreciate all the uh, everything today and all the good work you've been doing over the years, and excited to keep in touch with you. Anytime, Dave. This has been a real pleasure. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. 